1: We tend not to think of where the things in our daily lives come from. When it comes to certain items, they've been a part of our lives for so long it feels like forever. Paper, for example, is so ubiquitous all over the world, some may be surprised to learn that it got its start in China almost 2,000 years ago. And the glasses we use to see clearly each day first arrived in Italy during the 13th century. But such inventions aren't the only things that have spread across the globe. Food has also escaped beyond its original borders, allowing different cultures to sample flavors from thousands of miles away. William Hughes was on a quest, but not for food. He was on the hunt for plants. He had traveled thousands of miles by ship from his home in England to the Americas during the 1630s. Hughes was a botanist, writing about the plants of the New World. He was also a pirate. There weren't too many pirate botanists in those days, if you can imagine. Hughes had pretty much cornered the market. However, he was no captain. Instead, he took up a position serving on one of the king's ships doing odd jobs. Other crew members followed orders to capture any ships they encountered at sea, but that wasn't what made Hughes a pirate. His job was unique and considerably more dangerous. When a ship encountered an unfamiliar land, Hughes was sent out in a small boat to investigate it. He would look for food and fresh water, then report back as to whether it was safe for the others to come ashore. He wasn't upset about the task, though. By exploring the flora of unknown shores, Hughes was able to record new observations for his book. He encountered plants and fruits, such as sugar canes, limes, and prickly pears. In his notes, he detailed how to use them in their fullest potential. The lime, for example, worked best as an antidote to scurvy. Of all the fruits he encountered, though, there was only one to which he devoted his longest and most thorough entry. He called it the American Nectar. The Colombians and Hondurans were already familiar with it. Its main ingredient had factored into their foods and drinks for thousands of years. The ingredient was considered a food of the gods. People would grind it up or crush it into a pulp and place it in hot water with other foods, like honey and vanilla. The drink was also incorporated into religious ceremonies and, when prepared in a certain way, bore the color and viscosity of blood. European colonizers who visited South America were often greeted with steaming cups of the stuff, which was how Hughes came to know it so well. He published some of his favorite recipes in his book, The American Physician, in 1672. He wasn't the first to encounter the fruit, but he was among the first to write about it in English. Christopher Columbus had encountered it over a hundred years earlier on one of his trips to the Americas. The Hondurans he'd met had treated it as precious as gold, spilling some of the fruit on the floor of their canoe and quickly picking it back up, careful not to lose any. Columbus tasted some and believed it to be some kind of almond. In fact, most Europeans who consumed the drink made from this valuable ingredient didn't care much for it. It was too bitter for their tastes. One Italian explorer noted that it was more fit for pigs than humans, and so it was widely ignored outside of Central and South America. Spain went on to adopt it, but it didn't spread throughout the rest of Europe until Hughes brought both the fruit and the recipes back with him to England. Europeans eventually returned to the Americas, but not to taste the magical drink. They committed genocides of the indigenous people, murdering thousands and taking many overseas as slaves. They also started importing African slaves as well. The women from these different cultures shared their knowledge to help make the drink less bitter, as it would appeal more to their master's tastes. They would sweeten it by adding things like milk and flavorings. Today, we still guzzle cups of it during the winter, snuggled up by our fireplace or the Yule log on TV. We put everything from marshmallows to peppermint in it to enhance its flavor, but in the end, the pure substance just can't be beat. The American nectar the South Americans gave to William Hughes was none other than hot chocolate.
0: Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values. Premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the natural hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary, indulges your senses, and supports a greener tomorrow.
1: Nothing beats a nice, relaxing vacation on a tropical island, the warm sand beneath one's feet, a cold drink with a tiny umbrella sticking out of it, and the sound of the ocean crashing upon the shore. Just the thought is enough to make someone want to pack up and fly out to one tomorrow. That is, if they can find it. In 1977, England's Guardian newspaper did a special report on an obscure set of islands known as the saint Serif which were celebrating the 10th anniversary of their independence from Portugal. Despite its rich history, San Serif was not well known until The Guardian's seven-page story. It was discovered in the Indian Ocean by explorer John Street, who first set sail with his crew in 1421. Spain and Portugal sent ships of their own to colonize the islands ten years later. After their rule ended, Great Britain took control of San Serif during the mid-17th century, until it ceded the land to Portugal in 1815, the island's independence not coming until April of 1967. The larger island, named Queixa Superiore, was home to an international airport, as well as lush forests and substantial oil fields along its western coast. The smaller island, Queixa Inferiore, also had an airport of its own and several tourist-friendly beaches. Surprisingly, such small islands were actually home to almost every world religion imaginable. However, the primary faith was that of Asterism, an amalgamation of Christianity, Hinduism, and other belief systems. Worshippers believed their god, the Ascender, would eventually return and lift them above the baseline with the help of priests known as Wingdings. The food of Sansarif was comprised mainly of the root vegetable Swarfega. Sworfega was prepared a number of ways, including mashed, squashed, and flattened, then dipped into flavorful sauces to help with the taste. Many islanders would wrap it in toilet paper first to help it go down just a little easier. Readers were smitten with Serif and what it had to offer Englanders looking for a tropical vacation spot. But travel agents hated it. They were bombarded with calls following the report's publication from people hoping to book flights to the archipelago. There was just one problem. They couldn't find it. If you haven't caught on yet, there's something a little offset about Serif. You can hear it in the name. Sans Serif, consisting of the two principal islands where those names translate to uppercase and lowercase. Its cities and ports are named after fonts, such as Bodini, Garamond, Clarendon, and other areas named for general typesetting terms. At the tip of the lower island lies Thirty Point, just a hop, skip, and a jump away from the shores of Gill Sands. The island's creation had been an April Fool's Day joke devised by Philip Davies, the special reports manager for The Guardian. He had been mildly annoyed by the articles of another paper, The Financial Times, which would publish pieces about small countries he had never heard of. Shortly before April 1st of 1977, Davies was flipping through The Financial Times and wondered, why don't we just make up a country? The other editors took his idea and ran with it, turning it not only into a successful April Fool's Day joke, but also an advertising venture. Four of the seven pages of the report were nothing but ads from real companies who were in on the hoax. For example, Kodak held a photo competition for readers' pictures of San Serif. Winners would be featured in a public exhibition the following year. Though the airlines and travel agents were less than thrilled by the ruse, it has endured for over 40 years thanks to fan-made websites and even a series of books published about life on the islands. All fictional, of course. Several astute readers caught on right away, writing back to the paper with tongue-in-cheek letters about their childhood trips to the islands. It wasn't like Davies was trying to hide it, either. Look closely at a map of San Serif, and you'll see the biggest clue of all. The pair of islands had been drawn to resemble a semicolon. And that's what I'd call curious. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works.